Father, thank you, Lord, that uh, you have taught us so well throughout the years we've been in this place and continue to do so. Thank you for the privilege it is to study your word and to be among others who value the study of your word. And may we continue, Lord, as we endeavor to learn today, continue in the guidance of your spirit, not proposing our own thoughts, but resting in yours. And we depend on you, Father, to reveal them. So we we lean on your wisdom and on the spirit's guidance and ask that you would bring home to us the truth that you've placed in your word today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 3, verse 4 is where we pick up today. We reach a very significant, a very pivotal moment in the history of mankind. As you know, this is the moment in which woman is going to trip up, leading to the man to do the same. Uh, It's probably worth a moment just to remember how we get to the point where they're both there in this situation. As you remember, Adam was walking around the Garden of Eden. He was feeling very lonely. So God asked him, what's wrong? And he said he didn't have anyone to talk to. You remember this? God said he would make Adam a companion and it would be woman. And God said, this is going to be a person who will gather food for you and cook for you. And when she discovers your clothing one day, she'll wash it for you and she'll always agree with every decision you make. She'll bear your children. She'll never ask you to get up in the middle of the night to take care of them. She will... uh, If you aren't here every Sunday, you probably don't remember some of these details. She'll never nag you. She'll always be the first to admit she was wrong when you have a disagreement. She'll never have a headache. She'll freely give you love and passion whenever you need it. And at this point, Adam, obviously interested, uh, stops, asks God, well, gee, what will a woman like this cost? And God replied, eh, an arm and a leg. So Adam asked, well, what do I get for a rib? And here we are today. I think that catches us up uh, to where we left off. So now, as we reach the point where woman is in the garden, that was fun, wasn't it? But now we now we have to go back to the to the text. Woman had encountered this serpent, this snake, who we now know from what we studied last time was Satan himself indwelling the animal of snake. And he has used this opportunity to bring a challenge to woman. And his challenge takes the form of a question initially. Did God really say you couldn't eat from any tree in the garden? Last time when we looked at that, we said as as we study what happens, we also need to understand this is a model of sorts, a picture, a pattern of the way sin works in our lives as much as it did in her life as well. So we're going to be looking at the facts and the circumstances. We're also going to be looking at a pattern of sin and how sin works. When we last looked at this, we we noticed that first you have sin starting in the form of a lie, the father of lies doing what he does best. Notice his opening statement was a lie. He says, did God really say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? No, God didn't say that. That was clearly a lie. How appropriate that Satan's first words in the Bible recorded are a flat lie. Then secondly, we noticed that his attack was directed at God's word. What he chose to attack was what God said or God's word, his instructions. He causes us to question or to doubt God's word or become confused about it or to become distracted and not pay attention to it. That's his primary attack method to God's word. This is actually going to come up again when we look at evolution next week. It comes down to what does God say and what do we think of what he says. Then third, we notice that Satan's charge, his his argument, was that God was withholding joy and freedom from Adam and from woman. That was his 
That was his accusation in the way he framed his question. And in verse 1 of the chapter, we saw him suggest that God had restricted them from all these good things, but impugns his motive. Now what Satan is doing, and this brings us now to where we are in, in the chapter, Satan here is appealing to pride. Remember, his fall was a matter of pride as well. Pride is the seed of all this, the beginning of sin. He wants woman to imagine how much better things would be for her if she could have her own way rather than living within God's law. That's where pride comes to the foreground here. He's asking woman to think of how much better things could be for her if she could just do something her way instead of God's way. Pride. Now remember, woman didn't fall for the bait, at least not initially. She responded, she tried to correct the snake, she tried to present God's word, but she did it wrongly. Remember, she added some things and she forgot some other things. And the sum effect of all of that was that her answer left an opening for Satan, and Satan drives right into that opening. Her own uncertainty concerning God's word left her vulnerable to Satan's guile. When we are unclear, uncertain, unsure of God's word, we have just created an opening that the enemy will exploit. Now let's look at where we go next in the chapter. Verses 4 and 5 begin our teaching this morning. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So Satan now directly challenges the truth of God's word. Look at the steps here. In step one, he set forth a proposition that was actually a lie and said that God is wrong about the consequences. And then step two, the woman who lacked a knowledge and confidence in God's word tried to refute the enemy's scheme, but she falls short of being able to do it satisfactorily. Now we reach step three. So step one is attack the word. Attack the truth of what God says. Step two is our response, if we know God's word at all, is if it's incomplete, leaves a gap. Step three, the enemy proposes an alternate path. And he suggests that this alternate path will arrive at a greater benefit than the path God has offered. He says to woman in this case, you surely will not die. That is a direct contradiction of God's word, and it offers no compromise. He has positioned the woman at a fork in her walk with God. There's no way you lay these on top of each other. You will die or you will not die. So now she is in a position of deciding for herself who holds the greater truth. Woman is presented with a clear alternative. She can accept God's word in faith, or she can test his word, test the truthfulness of what he says by choosing an alternative path, one that essentially denies God. Now, Satan goes on to explain that the effect of eating will not be to die, but rather will be to having your eyes opened, meaning that you will know something you don't already know. And this new awareness, he says, will make you like God himself. That's his proposal. She will know good and evil. What he implies is that there is more to her existence than God has provided. There's the door you haven't opened and God's not showing you what's behind that door. And if you just open that door, you'll find something you'll like. Your experience will be improved. Another way to say it is God's word is not sufficient for you. You can go outside God's word, outside his instructions, and you can have an even greater experience than the one you get by following his word. Now, like most good lies, 
there's a partial truth here. There's an element of truth hidden within the overall lie that Satan is proposing here. He says, if she eats of the tree, her eyes will be opened. She will be more like God in that she will now better understand what it means to be good. That is absolutely true. If she eats, she's going to learn something she doesn't currently know. The lie is that she will not only be more like God, the lie is she will also be less like God in that she will have a first-hand experience with sin and with evil that God himself does not even have. Though God knows about evil, he knows everything, he has no first-hand experience. He's never participated in sin. She will be doing something he's never done. And in that sense, she's less like God. She falls from the point of holiness that she currently occupies. The lie is, yes, you'll be more like God, but in a more important sense, you'll be less like God. Then secondly, he's proposing that sin has no consequences. Do you notice? He's saying it'll all be better. He's suggesting that when you choose your own desires over God's commands, you won't suffer loss, you'll only experience gain. This is the first and the greatest lie. And from it stem all others. When we decide that following our desires above God's word leads to something better rather than to consequences, we are pursuing the same lie that Satan offered a woman in the garden. If you think about your own life, and I don't need to ask for volunteers or take an inventory, but if you think about your own life and about the things you know you have weaknesses toward in terms of sin, and you think back to how you reach those points in time, those mistakes, those errors, ask yourself how often it comes about as a result of a decision that in pursuing this course, whatever it is, your life will be better. You'll be happier, you'll be more content, or you'll feel more satisfaction. And that it's because of those desires that you drive down a path that you know and you've experienced before is never going to be good. But because in the moment we feel like that choice is a superior choice for our needs over what God himself has decreed we should want or do or say or think, we pursue it. It's the same lie that brought woman to sin in the garden. It's exactly the same beginning point. Let's stop for just this quick moment and let's consider the pattern that now is starting to take hold, take form in the texture, a pattern of how sin works. If you want to rise above sin in your life as we all should want, and to the degree God gives us grace to do so, we will. But the beginning of that process is understanding the problem. Then you can move on, hopefully, to an addressing of the problem. Sin is, by definition, a disregard of God's will and his word and a reliance on our own ways and desires in place of God's will. It's that fork in the road. It's facilitated by a weak knowledge of God's word that can be twisted by the enemy or a willing disregard of it if we choose to ignore what we know. And by the way, there are examples of this that are easy to find. Examples in which a weak knowledge of God's word leads to trouble. How about God helps those who help themselves? That phrase is not in the Bible. But more importantly, that sentiment is not in the Bible. The Bible teaches exactly the opposite. God helps those who cannot help themselves and who acknowledge they cannot help themselves. Those who think they can help themselves do not get God's help until they are willing to acknowledge they cannot help themselves. We've taken this sentimental farmer's almanac version of logic and turned it into a biblical precept, and yet it's opposite of the Bible's teaching. 
prosperity gospel. The very fact that there is a prosperity gospel in the church today is a direct result of a weak knowledge of God's word. If there was a strong understanding of God's word, no preacher with the prosperity gospel would ever get a hearing. They'd be run out of town. Even Christians can naively follow the enemy's half-truths when we allow this, uh, this pattern to take hold because of a weak knowledge of God's word. And when we come to believe that making our own rules arrives at a better result than what God gives us, we're just repeating the same sin. So that's the pattern, that there is first a lie driven into our mind about what the better course is, and then a weak knowledge of God's word leads us to accept that lie in place of the truth, or a a willing disregard of the truth. We'll do the same. In time, when we accept those lies as truth and we take those other paths, I will tell you from experience that you will not necessarily know that you've made that wrong choice at first. But time will tell. If we wait to cease in those sinful choices, if we wait to stop from those sinful choices until we see the consequences of our sin, that's a dangerous methodology. And I can tell you that from experience. Because by the time you finally see the negative consequences of choosing your own desires rather than listening to God's word, you may be so far down that path that the consequences will be so many and so heavy, you'll never escape them. And by that point, we'll have incurred an even greater penalty in eternity for a life of disobedience. Now, the woman here is about to pay the cost of her sin in the moment. Look at verse 6. When the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. So with with the enemy pulling her strings, woman's pride begins to pull her toward sin. Now let's look here at the pattern. It begins with one simple, powerful word. Saw. The woman saw that the tree was good for food. Now notice this. This is important. God has already declared that the fruit is bad for food. It is not good for food. This is bad fruit, right? He's already said that. The fact that it looked good doesn't change that, does it? The way the text presents her experience, it gives you the impression that after she heard what she heard from Satan, she took a new look at the tree. That's the sense of it, isn't it? He puts something in her mind that causes her to question God's word and to think twice about the whole set of instructions she gave. And she turns, perhaps, and she looks again at the tree and she says, you know, I never realized how good it actually looks. We know the tree was a fruit tree. We've been told that already. So was she. We know it produced fruit similar to the other trees. So, of course, it looked good. The fact that she could look upon it, though, and notice that the tree had good fruit adds no new information. You ever been in a situation where you're trying to make a tough decision? And if you're like me, the way you try to resolve those tough dilemmas, those tough decisions, is you seek for more information. That's my style, anyway. My style is to say, well, maybe I need some more facts. And the Internet is a wonderful thing for people like me, right? Google all day long until you feel like you've got all the facts. What you're trying to do is find some new additive piece of information that will give you something different, something that changes your point of view or your perspective so that you'll be better informed about your decision. In a sense, that's what she's doing. But the problem here is she gained nothing new. 
The fact that it looks good is something she knew before the serpent ever showed up. But suddenly, suddenly, that becomes the crucial piece of information that makes her think differently about the problem, isn't it? It's, it's as if that's something new. But in fact, it is not new. And that is a key problem in how we deal with sinful opportunities in our life. If we look at it and believe that our desire, driven by the, by the eye, that desire, the inflaming of that desire, is itself proof that it's good, we're letting lust convince us. There is absolutely nothing new that she's taking in through her eyes. Look at the language a little more closely in the verse I read. The woman saw the food was a delight. The word in Hebrew there is tahava, and what it literally means is intense longing. Intense longing. It's a very strong word in the Hebrew. She looked upon this thing, and what she saw produced instantly an intense longing. Folks, there is a reason why stores have big windows facing the street. That is not coincidental. If they put it in front of you and you see it, the chances are much more likely you will find an interest in it than if they simply put a sign out with the words of what they have. Seeing is believing. The phrase desirable to make one wise or to gain insight. The word desirable there in in Hebrew is chamad. It literally means covet. It's the same word used in Exodus 20 when he talks about the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not chamad. What does she do? She has an intense longing and she starts to covet for what she sees. Woman is giving us here a powerful example of how sin works in all of us. Almost invariably, sin begins with the eye. Almost invariably, it begins with what we see. When we see something that leads to a longing and a coveting and a desire, and then after that we act, sin has come into being. Remember chapter 11 of Luke. Jesus makes this statement in 11.34. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. When your eye is clear, your whole body is full of light. When it is bad, your body also is full of darkness. And he's not talking about 20-20 vision. He's talking about what you look upon. What, what you let fill your view. In Matthew 5.27 in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, you have, heard, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's how powerful the eye is. It's not about the strict visual sense of sight, but it's what we see in our mind's eye, whether that's presented by a visual impulse or a memory of something we've seen before or a suggestion of something we should see in our, in our mind, in our imagination. Nonetheless, those things are things that begin to prompt a behavior or a thinking that leads to sin. And woman is falling prey for this trap. She's letting her sight and the resulting lust direct her rather than her knowledge of God's word. Hey, one is a lot more fun. One is a a lot more engaging and interesting. That's why visual things capture our interest so much. That's why video dominates on the web more than audio, for example. That's why a lot of people write to the ministry that I have and ask me, when are we going to start presenting our teachings with video? Because they want to see the person who's teaching. There's nothing wrong with that, but you have to ask the question, what difference does it make? When you get right down to it, the information imparted will be about the same. In fact, if you were to see me, you'd want to go back to the audio. (laughs) The fact is that it's about our need to be entertained a little or to be drawn in or stimulated, but it's, it's also a dangerous temptation. Because it leads to a lust that promotes sin. James says it this way. Look at the pattern again. James 1, verses 14 and 15. He said, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. 
When lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. We looked at this back when we studied the letter of James. Temptation itself is not sin. Jesus was tempted. But giving in to temptation is sin. And in woman's case, her lust here is for the suggestion that Satan planted in her mind. The lust is, this object, if I take hold and eat it, will bring me to something better than I have now. A likeness closer to God. A knowledge I don't have. And that was desirable, she said. A coveting. Is she coveting the fruit? No. She's coveting what Satan says the fruit will bring her, which is a wisdom she doesn't have. Think how that works today. Why do people want certain brands of jean clothing? Why do they want certain shoes? Why do they want certain cars? In many cases, it's not for the practical need of that object. Because if that were the case, they'd buy the cheapest they could find that did the job, right? Why do they buy $200 pair of jeans? We were at Harrods when I was in London last week with my family, and we were getting a kick out of looking at some of the prices. Three, $400 pairs of jeans. Who in their right mind spends $400 on a pair of jeans? Somebody with a lot more money than me. But what's it about? She desired to, the fruit because it would make her wise, which is the lie that Satan gave her. He plants a lie, it turns into a desire, now she pursues the desire. Likewise, we have teenagers and people of all ages seeking after these objects of desire because in their mind or in their lustful thinking, Satan has planted the the suggestion, or the world has planted the suggestion, that those things will make them prettier, sexier, more accepted by their peers, more popular, appear to be more financially successful. There is some greater thing, a lust, that drives their desire that has caused them to go after these things. And Satan is right there along, coaching us the whole way. Not necessarily personally for each of us, but through him or through his agents or through the world as, as he has influenced the world. That coaching is always ready and right around us the whole time. So look at what woman does next. Seeing leads to what? What's the next thing in the chain? The next step she takes, she grabs the fruit. She touches it. You're in a store and you're about to make a purchase you shouldn't probably make. But you study it, you look at it, you look at the price, you look at the fabric, or you look at the mechanics of whatever it is you're looking at. Then you start to touch it. Then you hold it. Then you imagine it being yours. You imagine what it would be like to have it when you get home, right? I mean, you see the process. You know how this works. Maybe take it out of a purchase context. Maybe put it into a a context of lust for another person. You study them with your eyes. Then you engage in conversation. You begin to, to have little flirtatious Talk and and maybe a touch on the shoulder and next thing you know, it moves on. You see how this process works. It's not unique to her. This is how the process works. Knowing that gives you opportunity to say to yourself at points along that path, why do I keep looking? I need to not look. I need to understand it really begins with the eye. I need to avert my eyes. And if you move past that, though, and you're at the next stage and you're starting to to touch and kind of play within your mind and think of it as yours, put it down and walk away. Right. Move on. It's not that that's easy, but it's certainly not going to happen if you're not consciously aware that that's the pattern, that it works that way. In her case, I wonder if after she touched it, she paused for a second before she bit into it. Now, why do you think I'm suggesting that? Well, remember when Satan challenged her concerning God's word, she responded with an incorrect version of God's word. And in the way she changed it, she added the requirement that God said, do not touch. Now, God had not, never said that, but that's how she remembered it. 
or thought it was said. Now, I wonder as she reaches out and she touches it, if she didn't pause to wonder, what's that, will I die? What's going to happen next? As if she were testing the truth of God's word, though it wasn't God's word, it was a false version of God's word. But you see how not knowing God's word accurately can lead us to points where we feel like we've tested and gotten away with something and we won't see a consequence. So her poor memory here is actually an accomplice of sorts in drawing her further into her sin. She touches no death. Maybe Satan's right. Maybe I really have nothing to fear about this fruit. And then after touching it, she moves to the the next step. By the way, I see this pattern a lot. I often encounter Christians who are troubled by contradiction in God's word, but they have misunderstood a verse or a passage of scripture. And as a result, they come to believe it contradicts some other passage in scripture. In reality, the two passages are not in contradiction. But because their understanding is incomplete, they see a problem potentially with God's word rather than with themselves where it really belongs. And as a result, they may lose confidence in God's word. They may start to say to themselves, maybe the word isn't meant literal after all. Maybe these contradictions prove that I shouldn't be so hard and concrete with my understanding. I need to be fast and loose and a little free and easy and and play with it a little bit. When in reality, that's never the problem. The problem was their own understanding was incomplete. I see this a lot. I see a lot of people who will defend a liberal view of Scripture using apparent contradictions as proof that you can't take the Bible too seriously. You can't look at it too closely. You can't use it as if it were a prescription for living because you're just going to run into these corners where you're going to be in a, in a contradiction that you can't escape from. That's woman's problem right now, I think, in part. And by the way, the, will, the enemy is only too willing to oblige us in that process, feeding our doubts, offering alternative truths, bringing us false counselors who will say to us things that feed the perception that the Bible is inaccurate. They're all out there. Finally, she's looked, she's touched, then she completes the sin by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, God said that when they do this, they would surely die. But you can see in the text that woman has obviously not fallen over. She's still alive. In fact, Adam, after he eats, is going to live physically for another 930 years. Now, when we talked about this earlier, we acknowledged that that death warrant was a spiritual death, not the physical They would die spiritually, not physically. They would cease to be holy and innocent and pure, and they would lose the ability to fellowship with God in that state. But their physical life would continue on, at least as God permitted it. From her limited point of view, though, from her own self-perception, think about it, you're standing there as if you're her. You've reached, you've touched, nothing, nothing, okay. You've eaten, nothing. From her perspective, for the moment, nothing's changed. Now, she must truly feel at this point that God's word is untrustworthy. It seems as though everything God has said has not come true, and everything the enemy has said has been right. That's, that's probably her immediate understanding of her moment. God has said that eating of the treat would result in death, but look, here I am. Now, here's what's really happening. God is not present in the garden in this moment. He will be soon, but he's not there right now. And for now, she senses no change in herself because she, in her unholy state now, has not come face to face with holiness as of yet. And so in that in that difference, the difference between light and dark, (laughs) the difference between holiness and unholiness, in that difference, we come to an understanding. But apart from God's presence, she doesn't perceive the difference in her life. 
she suddenly falls to a position of unholiness. But until there is something to contrast that with, she's not immediately perceptive of any difference. And instinctively, she feels an urge to share the fruit with him. And in fact, that's the very next thing she feels she wants to do is share what she has with him. Think about that for a moment. Why did she give him the fruit? What was it that drove her to share that experience? It's taken for granted in the text, but you should ask that, that question of yourself. Why would she want to share this? When we live in sin, we seek out others to share in that sin with us. Misery loves company and so does sin. Test that in your own thinking. When you live in sin as a matter of a pattern, you're not just a bad influence on other people. But the very nature of sin is that it wants to spread. You want to share it. You feel uncomfortable until someone else validates or affirms your choice by sharing in it with you. Romans, Paul says it this way in Romans 5.12. He says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, look, so death spread to all men because all sinned. It's like a disease. It cannot stay with one person. It moves from host to to host and when we indulge in sin we will have an instinctive desire to share that with others if someone close to us someone we spend a lot of time with someone who matters to us has not chosen to make the same mistakes that we are choosing to make we will want them to join us just for the sake of minimizing our own conviction or we will hide our sin from them or we will run from them and this is not a perfect rule I know there are exceptions But those three things tend to be what drive us when we sin. In woman's case, she would have had a need to share that sin with Adam to draw him back to her side. That would have been the instinctive thing she would have wanted to do. Folks, we have to understand and recognize that the danger in our sin isn't limited to merely ourselves or even collateral damage by the consequences. It extends even deeper than that. It makes us an advocate for our own sin into the lives of other people, almost inevitably, and and in a very subtle way. In a very subtle way, we will rationalize and argue to their detriment why they should follow us or at least condone us. Look at it in our political world today. How many people have lifestyles of sin that have led them into campaigns to establish not only that they can do it, but that it is legitimate and that everyone else should follow with them? They need to to take what they believe is right or what is sinful in their life. They need to make it legitimate for their own conscience and to distribute it to others. It's the nature of sin. It's why people sleep around now before marriage. It's why people use four-letter words in all their music. It's why movies have nothing but sex and other things. It's the nature of sin. It spreads. It infects. And then finally, in one of the strangest and probably most disturbing lines in the entire Bible, we are told that she gives it to her husband with her, and he eats. Adam was with her, we're told, and when he was offered the fruit... He ate. No discussion. No debate. No questions. Where'd you get that fruit? He just complies. He just does it. I mean, there is some debate in the, in the way people look at this verse as to whether he was really present or not when Satan was talking to woman. I think the text makes that clear. I really do. It says he was with her. Why would the, the writer of the verse, why would Moses say she gave to her husband who was with her or with her Unless it means that he was there. Otherwise, you wouldn't say it at all. You'd just say, and he gave it to her husband. The very fact that that phrase, with her, is included, must mean he was there in the moment. I think that answers the issue, but 
be that as it may, whether you believe he was there in the moment or not, it doesn't really matter because whether he heard the conversation or whether he didn't hear the conversation, the Bible makes clear what his role is. He chose to eat without any deception. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.14, It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Paul settles the argument. I don't care if he heard Satan or not. I don't care if he was there from the beginning or not. The fact is, no matter what he saw or heard or didn't see, he was not deceived. He did something of his own volition without any deception being a part of the equation. He simply decided to do what he knew he shouldn't do. Scripture says he, his reason for eating had nothing to do with the serpent. And what's more, look at his behavior. He didn't protest like the woman did, right? He doesn't try to quote God's word, right or wrong. He seems completely willing to disobey. Now, you have woman eating first, handing it to her husband, who then eats second. Who is credited with the fall? Well, you might assume it's woman just based on first come, first serve, right? The first one to sin. But Scripture doesn't place any importance on the order at all. Instead, it lays the sin of mankind entirely at the feet of Adam. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15:21, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ all will be made alive. You could also go to Romans 5:12, which I just quoted a little bit earlier, that through one man sin entered the world. Adam is the one man that he's talking about. Adam brought the fall. Look at the next verse, verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Notice, only after Adam ate were both their eyes opened. You don't see her eyes open after she eats and his eyes opened after he eats. Neither of them moved to this state here of eyes open until he ate. Now, let's be careful about this. We are not saying that her actions were not sin. The moment she did the wrong thing, she sinned. What we're saying is that the deception of the enemy provided for her cover of sorts, a kind of excuse, get out of jail free card, that was not available for man. And at the moment man eats, he moves both of them into the sin column in which they have now fallen. Now, why wasn't woman credited with the fall? Why is this true, in other words? Well, according to the verse we read, deception is a legitimate defense. She was deceived by Satan. He twisted her understanding of God's word. He planted in her mind thoughts that were not true. And she was, a, she was responding to what she had been told in deception. Her own lust and her own sinful desires ultimately were the mechanism to bring about sin. But that entire process was instigated by Satan. Had Satan not been there, had he not played that crucial role, we can fairly assume by Scripture's testimony, woman would not have sinned. That's what it has to mean. If deception is a defense, it means that had she not been deceived, she never would have done what she did. Now, why was deception a legitimate defense? Can we use that same defense today? Well, the answer is it was a defense for her because she was an innocent. She didn't know evil. Evil was not something she could understand. She could be led to think that she was acting according to God's word when she really wasn't. But we cannot use that defense today because after the fall, every man and woman has been born into sin. We begin the first day of life as a sinful human being. 
with a nature that's fallen already, that only knows evil, we cannot be deceived when we are already fallen. In other words, there's no chance for me to stand before God and say, because the Satan's in the world, you can't hold sin against me. He's going to look at me and he's going to say, every breath you took was sinful, Steve, from beginning to end. Your sin stands on its own. Even if Satan never paid a minute's attention to you, your life was full of sin because of the nature you brought in when you came into the world. She, not having a nature of sin, was eligible, if you will, to use that defense. Why did Satan begin with woman? Why didn't he just go straight to Adam and let Adam eat? Well, you might have assumed that he was attacking the easier target, but you'd actually have it backward, in my opinion. In reality, he attacked the harder target. He went after where the defenses were. Woman believed God's word. Woman defended God's word. Woman tried to do the right thing. Adam was ready and willing to eat the fruit the moment she handed it to him. I think Satan knew he already had Adam in the bag. Adam was already a goner. I've got to work on that woman. But if Adam was willing and woman wasn't, why were they both put out of the garden? Why are both counted as sinful? Why are both fallen when Adam eats? Why are both their eyes open the moment he eats? How come she's caught up in this if it's only his fault? Well, here we see God's wisdom when he created woman in such a unique way. Remember how he created woman? Didn't go back to the dirt. Didn't make her ex nihilo. Instead, he went to Adam, pulled it out of the rib, as I said earlier, and made woman. So when Adam sinned, Adam brought his flesh into a state of sinfulness. And woman, being part of his flesh, literally, her sin, her flesh rather, became sinful the moment he ate. She's part of him. And not just in the metaphorical sense of how marriage makes us one flesh, in the spiritual sense, but in the physical sense they were one flesh. God, knowing that sin was going to come, understanding what were the future held in the garden, knowing that if he allowed one to fall and not the other, they'd be eternally separated and there goes humanity, because how are you going to have babies when one's in the garden and one's out? In grace and mercy, he says it's better that they both be out than that they be separated. And he creates woman in such a manner that when Adam falls, woman will be with him in that fall. Now, she ate anyway, but as we said already, the sin happened in Adam's moment. Isn't that an amazing plan? Now, there is one final outcome to their eating. They knew they were both naked, and they made efforts to clothe themselves. We'll come into this next week when we look at this idea of them becoming naked and of becoming aware of that. We talked in the earlier point about vulnerability and transparency and innocence versus having something to hide, to cover up. You notice here that they cover up their bodies, though. They feel a need now to conceal themselves, to create clothing. Notice they're not doing this because it's cold, it's not weather. They're not doing it because of civil standards of decorum. It's an inherent reaction to a sinful nature, to a vulnerability before God. The ultimate answer for why men and women wear clothing is here. Not for any other reason, although there could be other, ba- other reasons in, in some cases. It begins with this vulnerability. It is a visible proof that God has implanted in us a conscience and we recognize our inherent unholiness before God. And all the communication problems, all the difficulties in, in talking within a marriage trace back to sin and the fact that we are not transparent, that we must always cover up. Wouldn't it be wonderful, won't it be wonderful to have a relationship in our new bodies with one another in the body of Christ where we don't lack for transparency and we don't have any of these barriers anymore. So we'll come back next time and look more carefully at what it means that they covered themselves and how God responds. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, 
Help us to see this pattern of sin in our life. As we studied it in woman's life, Father, I pray we would not see it as something that only affects her or Adam. Let it be clear to us, Father, that we ourselves share in this. And I ask, Father, that you would guide us away from it. Lead us out of temptation, as you tell us. Show us, Father, how we give into it too easily. Convict us of it when it happens. And by your word, Father, continue to guide us into all righteousness. And bring us back next week as a family in the body of Christ to study again and to learn more. We pray you do this in Jesus' name. Amen.